Welcome to Tea Time with Mary. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm a former bikini fitness model turned self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hey everyone, quick thing before we jump into the podcast episode, I decided that instead of having sponsors on the podcast and filling it up with ads, I would just tell you about all the things that I have going on, including the free resources that you can use on your self-love journey. So one of the things that I want to offer you today is my self-love playlist on Spotify. Now, this playlist is litty titty for lack of better words. There's over 200 empowering, fun, uplifting songs on there that I listen to anytime I need a self-love pick-me-up. This is a playlist that I also listen to with my little sister. She's 12 and some of the songs are explicit, but you know, I push those boundaries. So just a little FYI there that some of the songs do have language and stuff like that in them, but they are fun and empowering nevertheless. So if you want the link to this secret Spotify self-love playlist, haha, say that five times fast, secret Spotify self-love playlist, then you can just click the link in the show notes. It'll take you directly to the page or just Google Mary's self-love playlist. If you type that into Google, it's the first link that pops up and you will be taken directly to Spotify and you'll also get emailed a link to the playlist so that way you'll never lose it. So make sure you go grab that link, like I said, either in the show notes or you can just Google it. We have about, I think like 3,000 people already have this self-love playlist. There's over 200 songs in it and counting because I add to this playlist nearly every single day. I think it's the perfect pick-me-up. It's just inspiring. It's uplifting. Most of the songs are very happy, and they just help on any day, whether it's a good day or a bad day. And it's also the perfect playlist for getting ready and feeling yourself because they're all about confidence and self-love and all the things that I'm all about. So Go get that playlist. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know how you like it by tagging me in your Instagram stories. And anytime you're listening to this playlist, just picture me having a dance party with you because I would love that. And I'm totally there with you in spirit. So I hope you enjoy this playlist. And without further ado, let's get into the podcast episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the podcast. Today, I am with a guest that I'm so excited to share with you because she just has touched my heart in so many ways, especially through her words. I'm here with Esme Wang, who is a writer. And in February of 2019, Gray Wolf Press published her essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias, which I have right here. And I just finished reading and it's so beautiful, which is why it became a New York Times bestseller and the Los Angeles Review of Books stated that Esme Weijian Wang is poised to become a major writer and this is her origin story. Her debut novel, The Border of Paradise, has received accolades and kind words from places like Lit Hub, NPR Books, and the Chicago Review of Books. She was selected by the Granta for their once-a-decade Best of Young American Novelist list of 21 authors under 40, and she received a prestigious Whiting Award in 2018. Esme, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you are a very, very burst writer, a beautiful writer. Um, The awards are just so well-deserved. And before we dive into the work that you do with being a writer, um, and then also what you write about, because I think those are kind of two separate things. And then 
creators bridge that gap. I just wanted to see how you're doing to humanize, you know, our experience. There's so much going on in the world and you're in the midst of not only a pandemic, but also the wildfires in California. So I'm wondering, how are you coping with everything? Um, is there any like words of, of encouragement that you can send to someone else that you feel like would really benefit to hear from you? Yeah. How's it going with everything going on? Yeah, I was just talking to you about this um, before we started recording, and it, it's honestly been um, a struggle. I think 2020 has just been an onslaught of thing after thing after thing. There was the pandemic, which was um, something that was very unlike anything that Um, most people had lived through before. And then there um, have been these wildfires that seem to be a sign of climate change getting worse and worse. And so I was just telling you today that um, San Francisco, which is where I live, has been experiencing the third worst air quality in the world today. And a couple of days ago, we woke up to skies that were blood red and um, the sky remained dark all day as though it were nighttime, which was also very strange. And I, it, it's been having a real impact on my mental health. And I, uh, about a month ago, um, was feeling depressed and I wrote to my psychiatrist and was asking, you know, is this something that we can address with medication? Is this something that I should um, be looking into in terms of my uh, medical regime? And so we did adjust my medications. And this time I wrote to her again and I said, you know, I'm starting to feel depressed again. I was you know, I didn't, I'd experienced, um, some improved mental health, but I've been feeling bad again. I've started to feel like, um, this is the end of the world. And I also feel like there are legitimately circumstantial things that are making that not, uh, um, that make that actually feel realistic. And the funny thing is she wrote back and said, um, it's not unrealistic that you would feel that it's the end of the world. And so that was actually kind of a relief. Um, I think it's unusual for someone, especially someone like me who has been dealing with mental health issues for most of her life, um, someone who is used to dealing with mental health issues in a way that's kind of like, oh, this is my thing, this is my internal thing, to then go to a circumstances where, where mental health becomes part of the greater circumstances Mm -hmm. of the world. And this year in particular, I think depression and mental health issues are something that so many people are going through, Mm -hmm. especially Black Americans, especially people who are part of different minority groups. 
Um, it's, it's really something to be going through this thing that usually feels really private and that, that no longer feels so private. Yeah, for sure. It goes from being like an individualistic thing to the collective, which is almost unifying in a convoluted kind of way. I mean, I wouldn't want to be unified under these circumstances, but at the same time, it's like humanizing that a lot of us can understand each other. Um, so yeah, the biggest way I've been coping with it is being as transparent as humanly possible about every little up and down um, and not trying to shut any of it down. And I think even something like a asking somebody a simple question, like, how are you really? Um, and when somebody asks you, how are you? Like also answering that really honestly. So I appreciate your honesty, even right off the bat, we got so <laughs> deep into it. Um, yeah. Do you have any like things that have helped you the most in this tough time? I think that um, there are a toolbox of things that I have relied on over the years. There has been journaling. There has been therapy. I talk to my friends on the phone. The funny thing is there are so many things that have typically helped me that I can't access anymore. You know, I can't see my friends. Um, I can't go for walks. Um, I can't even open the window, you know, now um, because of the wildfires. But uh, there are things that I've been able to access that I wouldn't normally have been able to access. The other day, I was able to watch Andrew Scott perform in these special performances at the Old Vic in London. Um, he was in a one-man play called Three Kings, written by Stephen Beresford. And it was a performance to raise money for the Old Vic, but I, uh, I had actually seen him perform, and, and most people know Andrew Scott as you know Moriarty in, uh, in <laughs> um, Sherlock Holmes or the Hot Priest in Fleabag, um, but I'd seen him last year when I was in London perform at the Old Vic in Present Laughter, but mm-hmm. you know normally I. I would have to fly to London to see him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because of the pandemic, um, these things are often streaming. So I subscribe to Playbill online. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I've been able to see a lot of streaming performances with actors and actresses that I adore or readings um, by actors that I love. And that's been really, that's been one of the most heartening things for me is to be able to see art. And mm-hmm. art has really been one of the things that has brought me to life in ways that nothing else can. And that is something that I have to remind myself often is that is the power of art during difficult times. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, And I've loved seeing so many artists take a very compassionate approach, making their stuff accessible and available and, um, and they still show up. Whereas I'm sure there's, they're dealing with their own stuff too, but the art has been very omnipresent and I didn't realize it until you said that. It's so true. 
Yeah, like, uh, I mean, people were so excited when Fiona Apple came out with um, Fetch the Bolt Cutters a few months ago. Um, you know, it had been so long since Fiona Apple came out with a new album, but mm-hmm. I felt like it was so, um, people were so hungry for a new Fiona Apple album. It felt like a real gift. Yeah, I'm like the worst person to talk about like music and pop culture and (laughs) and everything because I I grew up like in an immigrant family, super sheltered. I basically say I actually I grew up in San Jose um, and I was born at Stanford and we'll talk about your connection to Stanford. Um, Mm -hmm. Studied there, right? I lived in San Jose as well. um, Yeah, my childhood. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because I always. Um, I was, you know, born in the Stanford hospital and I've throughout my life, I've just always felt some sort of connection to it, even though I've never gone there. And even though like, mm-hmm. not like I was, cho- I chose to be born there, but even reading your book, I was like, oh my God, we're so connected. But yeah, it ta- it, me with pop culture, like it's just, I feel like it's a lost cause. So I'm writing everything down and I will include it in the show notes as well as dive in for my own curiosity, um, because I'm sure that your recommendations are going to be very fulfilling as well. <laughs> but with that aside, what's going on now, I would love to hear your personal story, a little synopsis, um, and what drove you to start writing about living with chronic illness and mental illness? Um, what was that that evolution? So I started experiencing symptoms of mental illness when I was pretty small, probably around five or six. And then I started experiencing more serious symptoms of anxiety and depression when I was around 11, but I didn't actually seek help until I was 16. And that was due to the fact that I was secretly seeing my high school counselor and my, you know, I too uh, grew up in in an immigrant family. My parents are Taiwanese immigrants, and they uh, had very strict ideas about mental health care. And they really felt like, you know, when I when I finally told them that I needed to see a psychiatrist, um, because my counselor told me that things had gone so bad that I really needed help. My mom yelled at me and she was so upset and she essentially said, you know, haven't we always given you everything you've ever needed, you know, like a home and food and clothing. And um, she was really angry and, and that caused uh, a lot of problems. I mean, that the cultural difficulty too was also hard. Um, And so there was this kind of, uh, generational but also cultural gap in between our understandings of what it meant to seek mental health care. And so I, for a long time, didn't really want to talk about my mental health issues publicly. I mean, this was cultural in terms of my Taiwanese heritage, but also in terms of just you know, being afraid that I wouldn't be able to find a job or, you know, like if I, if I wrote about it on a blog online, for example, I was afraid that, you know, my, my future boss would find it and, you know, then they wouldn't want to hire me because they would know that I had depression or, you know, some, that it would be a bias. And it finally 
came to a point where I was hired at a tech company and I realized if I don't start writing about this stuff now, when is there going to be a better time in my life to write about this stuff? I have a job um, and I'm not going to live a different life. This is my life and I need to start writing about this. So I had a little blog and I'd been writing online, you know, in diary lands and live journal and things like that since, you know, uh, and I'd been writing zines since the 90s. And when I started writing online about mental health stuff, I received so much feedback from people who were really touched by the fact that I was so open about it and that I was willing to to talk about these things. And especially because of the things that had happened to me when I was at Yale and uh, including essentially being kicked out of that school because I had been hospitalized twice in the psych hospital. And uh, yeah, there was just, and so I started to have people reach out to me and say, you know, uh, I went to such and such school and they won't let me come back because I tried to kill myself or I said that I was depressed and they won't let me come back and what should I do? And so I was having these Skype calls with strangers who were younger than me, um, who were teenagers at these colleges who were struggling with the same things that I had struggled with. And so I was writing about this stuff and I knew that people were interested and you know, uh, it's a long story in terms of how the book, The Collected Schizophrenia, came to be. But in the end, I ended up putting together the essays that made up The Collected Schizophrenia, and I submitted it to the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize. And they, uh, Bridget Hughes was the judge, and she selected it, and it won the 2016 Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize. And that is how that book came to be. Wow. Congratulations. I know it was four years ago, but still it's a big... Yeah. And it's just, it's so important to talk about. Um, you said in one of your interviews that something like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder is still so taboo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that applies to mental health in general. I'm I think we've come leaps and bounds in talking about it, especially on social media with, you know, voices coming out and talking about mental health, especially things like depression, anxiety, they've been more accepted, I think, but Mm -hmm. even still like my dad and I have a really rocky relationship. He deals with a lot of depression. um, And I was trying to convince him to go see a psychologist. And he's like, I went, you know, five years ago and it didn't help. And I'm like, so you went one time and it didn't help. So I'm trying to convince him why you need to like keep going consistently and get support. And I told him, dad, listen, like if you break a leg, you're going to go to a doctor and they're going to, you know, help fix your leg. Someone that, that knows how to do it. And there's no shame in that whatsoever. Like a broken legs, a broken leg, you need help, but Mm -hmm. something like mental health and mental illness because we can't see it um, and because it's not this like tangible thing that we can label right away um, it scares us to get help it's almost like we feel like we're unworthy of the support just because we can't touch it and so that's something that we really need to keep working to 
to not have that be a thing anymore, to not have that stigma. Yeah, I think there there's so many things there. There, I think there's a cultural thing, and I think there's also a gender thing. I think it's very mm-hmm. gendered, and and often I think men um, don't want to go and seek mental health care because it's not seen as manly or macho to talk about yeah. feelings or or to admit that you can't, you know, quote unquote, cope with your feelings by yourself or or that it might make you soft in some way and which is um which is very tragic because men are actually more likely to go through with suicide than women are and times right i read 17 that number stuck in my head yeah and so we need to have these conversations and and I think it's great that you are having these conversations with your dad and trying to trying to put it into language that he can understand. Yeah, I think and I think analogies just really speak to people. Um and yeah, especially in Russia where he lives in Russia. Um and to summarize, um my partner's dad actually said something about one of his relatives was diagnosed with depression and he's like, why is she depressed? Depression doesn't pay bills. Um, and that's very much like the, the mindset of a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people, like you said, there's a generational gap too. And then a cultural and yeah, there's just so much there. I read in your book, something that really landed with me, how um, there's kind of this dichotomy between there's a group of people that are like, I don't want to go to the doctor and get a diagnosis because I am scared of it or I'm scared of what they might say, or I don't want to label like that's, I've very much heard that conversation online and you write in the collected schizophrenia is that getting a diagnosis finally from your psychiatrist after eight years, I think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was almost comforting to you. Um, Yeah. Can you speak more into that? Yeah, I think that for me, I some people don't like labels and boxes. They they think that it's um they might say that it's kind of being put into a box or some kind of framework. And I I like being told that I am not undergoing something that no one has ever undergone before. I like knowing that maybe there was some, you know, ancient Egyptian or something or, you know, or, or hundreds of other people or, you know, someone in another country or someone in Utah or someone just, I like knowing that I am not pioneering an inexplicable experience. It makes me feel less alone and it makes me feel less, you know, haha crazy. Yeah. And it's exactly, it's like once you can um, diagnose something, that's when people can more or less work with it, even though there's so many things that don't have cures necessarily, but at least it guides them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me, if you don't mind me asking, and I know so much of this is in your book, which I highly encourage our, our listeners to get the collected schizophrenias um, and you know, let it absorb it all because there's so much there. I had to read it slowly and then reread it because you're writing stuff. <laughs> 
is just so beautiful. Um, but where was I going with that? Oh, could you tell us about your diagnosis and both your chronic and your mental illness and your chronic mental illness? Yeah. So I underwent a lot of different diagnoses in terms of mental illness. First, it was um, depression and anxiety and then bipolar disorder and um, many kind of disorders uh, that were along those lines. And right now it's something like schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type, which is kind of like a, a marriage between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And I also have a PTSD diagnosis. Um, in terms of my uh, physical illness, this is a... Uh, pretty confusing. So I I talk about this in the book in that I became really, really, really sick in around uh, 2014. And it was diagnosed as all kinds of things. First, it was fibromyalgia, and then it was uh, chronic Lyme. And I went and saw so many doctors. I went to the autonomic disorders clinic at Stanford, and they gave me one diagnosis. And I went to many different clinics, and I had all kinds of strange and intense treatments. And I think very slowly over the years, I got better and I'm not completely better by any means. And I still deal with a lot of symptoms. And at times, um, although much less than I used to, I have these intense flares where I just cannot function at all. And I am very, very sick. Um, but it's, it's something where I just don't know what exactly is wrong with me and I don't know what the right labels are and one doctor will say one thing and another doctor will say another and I take a lot of medication and I just kind of leave it at that. Um, I, I think that as long as I can live a life where I can do most of the things that I want to do, I I'm grateful for that. I am much more able to function than I was, you know, uh, even four years ago. I mean, I spent, and, and this is related to this pandemic time. I spent, I wrote an article for The Cut about how being so sick kind of prepared me for the pandemic because there was a long period where I could not really leave the house and I could not really get out of bed and I needed help to even walk to the bathroom. And I was just so, so, so sick. And yeah, and I'm just glad that I'm not in that place right now, but I don't know why. And I think that, that if that taught me anything, if that period taught me anything, it is that there is so much that we don't know about the human body. Mm. For sure. Um, one thing that I talk a lot about, um, more so in my online programs, not so much on social media, but um, this idea of healthism, because I have a lot of students that come to me and my programs are more centered around body image and learning self-acceptance and things of that nature. Um, and I have gotten numerous questions like, well, I 
have this condition I'm diagnosed with. Um, what was the more, most recent one I had? It wasn't Lyme. What's the, the other one that also doesn't have like a, a cure or a solid explanation? Um, but anyway, like chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic fatigue, and um, it'll come to me. Yeah, but something along that lines where she's always tired and even going outside for 20 minutes is just, mm-hmm. you know, makes her be on bed rest for the next two days. And mm-hmm. she's like, I, I want to love my body. I do. But how do you love your body when it, you feel like it's fighting against you all the time? Um, mm-hmm. And when you feel like it's, you know, working in that way. And I think that that is the main reason why self-love cannot exist without um, social justice because mm-hmm. disability and illness, it's one of those things that any of us at any point can get yes. and get diagnosed with. Um, so it's something that I've been pondering a lot because I'm like, I'm so privileged. Like at this point in time, I'm in a pretty healthy body. So of course it's easy for me to say like, love your body, like appreciate it. But there are so many people that don't have that same relationship with their body because of the pain that it brings them. Um, And the way that I answer the question to the best of my ability is like, well, you have to remind yourself that even though it feels like your body is working against you, it is also trying to keep you alive. And that's what Mm -hmm. it's fighting for 24 seven. And that's what the pain is, is your body trying to protect you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm wondering, how would you answer that? Or what is your relationship like with your body and how you relate to it? Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious. It doesn't have to be like a, a succinct response, but I'd love for you to speak more into that. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said about uh, your body keeping you alive is, it's true. Um, but it, I also think that aside from the physical suffering and misery that one's body can bring oneself uh in the midst of suffering and illness, a lot of the suffering and misery is from oppression, from society. Um, If things were more accessible, for example, certain things wouldn't be so miserable. Um, If there were more places for me to sit down um, or to lie down when I go out in public, I wouldn't suffer as much because I wouldn't be feeling the pain and the the exhaustion that I have to feel because there is no place for me to sit in a lot of places. Um, So, you know, to extrapolate that to disability uh, rights in general, a lot of what people who are dealing with disabilities, including chronic illness, are dealing with is living in a world that is not accessible and the suffering that is caused by that. Yeah. And I think the pandemic very much brings it to the spotlight. Um, My partner had a really bad case of coronavirus and he was down for three weeks and he's like a perfectly healthy dude. And and all the charts, but he was down for nearly a month. Um, and it took him even longer to regain his strength. And so I think that was very, very eye-opening, especially for for people who live in privileged bodies that 
disability is something that any of us can face at any time. And I remember living in Calgary when I lived in Canada. Um, the big problem in the city was that they wouldn't clean the snow off the disability mm-hmm. ramps. Um, mm. So people, whether in wheelchairs or crutches or just even with like a hip, you know, problem or anything um, that made walking unstable, they literally would not go outside for months on end. And you mentioned at the beginning that like how it's it's depressing to stay up home um, and not even be able to open your window and not being able to go outside and get some fresh air. So that's what so many people are are dealing with that I know I was unaware of for a long time. And another thing is that a lot of people who are getting coronavirus or getting COVID are experiencing long-term effects from COVID that we're not really understanding and that we may not understand for a while. Um, People who are going to be experiencing disability for their lifetimes um, because of having had COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, it'll take a long time for us to to really know all the repercussions of it. Um, I'm wondering what is something that people under, misunderstand about your diagnoses or if you want to speak more in general terms, like mental illness in general, uh, what do you wish that more people would know? Um, there is something that I like to say. Uh, um, it's not so much for people who don't have a diagnosis. It's more for people who have recently been diagnosed, um, which is that you are still you. I think that um, this is something that I really struggled with when I was first diagnosed, especially when I was first diagnosed with something that I thought was really scary, like bipolar disorder, um, which can be a really daunting diagnosis to get, or schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia, any of these really, any of these diagnoses that can seem really frightening. Um, and really any diagnosis can seem frightening. And this can apply to um, this can apply to to any kind of disability, is that you are still you and that is something that can get lost with a diagnosis. Um, you can feel like you're being taken over by this diagnosis. And I think it's important to try to hold on to the things about you that are still you, like you love Bruce Springsteen or you love blueberry pie or you hate the smell of cilantro or mm-hmm. you really like the feel of grass under your toes or your favorite Britney Spears song is Baby One More Time. Um, I think that it's really important to remember the things that still make you you, even if there is this new thing about you that you did not know before. Mm, That has been my biggest takeaway from your work, especially your book, is that we're not one thing. We're you know, everything all at once. And we're not just our diagnosis or a degree or our job or our physical characteristics. We're not subject to one label or identity. We can be many things. And there are also so many intricacies in us, such as the ones you listed uh, that are so simple. And yet that's what make us who we are. You have a paragraph in your book and I was struggling to find it, but 
I have it in my brain where, where you wrote, you know, I'm a wife and, um, I'm a, what did you write? I'm a writer, I'm a wife. And and you said all these other things that you were yeah, like, I'm five foot four and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that line or that paragraph, um, really landed. Uh, one thing, you know, branching off of that is you talk about how, when somebody has like, I don't know, cancer or diabetes or going back to that physical illness, that it's a little bit more tangible and easier for people to process. Not that it's not debilitating as well, but in terms of the labels, um, we don't say that that person is cancer um, or that they're becoming cancer. We say like, you know, they have cancer. That person was diagnosed with cancer. Whereas Mm -hmm. with mental illness, we're so quick to attribute it to someone's identity. Um, Mm -hmm. We call them and say things like they're bipolar, they're schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. They're this. Um, Could you explain more about why this is harmful and what we should say instead to be more sensitive? Um, This is something uh, in the disability rights um, discussion that's called person-first language. So it's just the idea of putting the person first as opposed to the diagnosis. I think that it gets a little bit complicated because sometimes people feel like, well, my diagnosis is a part of myself. So um, you know, people who uh, who are autistic, for example, may want to be described as um, autists or or autistic. Um, I think that uh, what I want to put first and foremost is that everybody is different. And just because one person may prefer one thing um, doesn't mean that everybody prefers that thing. Um, and just, you, you might just want to ask, you know, so that is what I would say about that. Ah, oh, so... <laughs> Those words, you might just want to ask. <laughs> Can we normalize asking people their preferences? Yeah. Like we'd be like, do you like cream in your coffee, right? Like just mm-hmm. ask. I think we get so nervous to just ask somebody a question about who they are. Um, and it's totally not necessary, I don't think. Um, mm-hmm. It's just been such, become such a loaded thing where it could just be a simple question. Oh, I love that cream in your coffee analogy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I love that. It's popped into my mind. Um, one, one last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is, you know, more of a selfish question. You, you have a whole chapter in the collected schizophrenia about, um, how you are a high functioning, mm-hmm. yeah, high functioning, um, person with a mental illness. What kind of tools or habits or boundaries have you had to employ in order to live, like you said, with um, chronic and mental illness? And, you know, I would say looking from the outside in even thrive and create such beautiful work and contribute to society in such a way that touches so many people. Um, There has to be some things that have helped you the most. And I'm wondering what those are. Yeah, so um, I have a really complicated relationship with the word, with the phrase high functioning. And again, to go back to the disability rights movement, I think that um, it's a really fraught concept, especially since high functioning is considered to be uh, something good. And if you're quote unquote low functioning, that's considered to be bad. Um, And so 
I think I try to address that in the book. But in terms of uh, how I try to make my life, um, how I try to address things so that I can make my life easiest on myself or how to how to make my life how to make wins easier for myself for example um there is a course that I'm working on actually um called dream hunting with limitations is probably coming out next year but um one thing that I really focus on in that is uh workarounds so uh one example is that I wrote pretty much the entirety of the collected schizophrenias on my iPhone um, in this essentially notes app because I had written my first book on a laptop just like sitting and typing. But after I got sick, it was pretty much impossible to just be sitting and typing all the time. So I needed to find a workaround in order to... um, to put my body in a physical position where I could actually be writing. And so I would write for much shorter periods at a time. So maybe like 20 minutes at a time while lying on my side in bed, tapping with one finger on my iPhone. And Mm. that is how I wrote the book. And it, you know, um, if I had compared it, if I had told this to my former self, I would, that self probably would have been like, how are you supposed to write a book that way? You could never write a book that way. That's that's pathetic. Like that that's nothing. Um, but you know, you add those sessions up and you you eventually end up with a book. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That is powerful. That reminds me of it's Bach, who's deaf, right? Mm-hmm. Um and oh learned- no, Beethoven. Yeah, Beethoven, I think. Sorry. Yeah, Beethoven, and he learned to hear the vibrations mm-hmm. or feel the vibrations, I suppose. Yeah, and just finding what works for you and those those little things really do add up, even the little note writing sessions. I mean, this book is, it's a book. It's a real book. <laughs> um, it's a deep book. It's in depth. And just as an aside, you did um, do a beautiful job of describing your complex relationship with the word high functioning, even just how different medical professionals would treat somebody that, you know, has in their notes high functioning versus low functioning and how accomplishments are almost like, I don't know, how would you explain it? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, Just, you know, as though they make someone more human Mm -hmm. or more worth, make their lives more worthwhile. Yeah. And in reality, we're all worthy of good things in this life um, mm-hmm. and everything, the accessibility that we talked about and little pleasures and joys. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, thank you so much for being the model of that truly. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much for your time before we farewell. I'd love to know where can our listeners dive deeper into your work and connect with you online Um your book, The Collected Schizophrenia, is the one I read. I'm planning on ordering your other one as well, your debut novel. Yes. Um, the Border of Paradise is my other novel. Um, people can find me at esmaywang.com. And these days, I am most often on Instagram at esmaywwang. 
SMAW Wang. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And oh, selfish question. Are you going to be teaching uh, writers workshops anytime soon? I would love um, to. I'm, teach- I'm teaching one tomorrow. And uh, if you uh, subscribe to my newsletter, that is always a great place to find out where my next workshop is. Um, I also usually announce them on Instagram as well. Yay. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, thank you for your time. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners before we farewell? Um, keep going. You're doing great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, and I'll talk to you in next week's episode. Bye everyone. Thank Bye. You. Bye.